Okay, John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments to a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash Mm -hmm. the disciples' feet, and wipe them with the towel. Simon Peter and Peter said... Nope. Here, start there. Then he came to the Lord. To Simon Peter. To Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do what I'm doing do you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter's Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If you do not wash my you, if I if I wash you, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet and also my, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, to him. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he know, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So then he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again. He he said to, to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater, is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me me, has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, 
that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one another on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is whom, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Jesus had the bag, that Jesus said, said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to have the word open before us. I'd like to begin by asking you a question. If you if you knew that you had a few hours left to live, how might you go about living those hours? To, to, to ask it a different way, let me, let me ask it this way. If you knew that you had a few hours before you were to die, how might you prepare for it? John 13, 1 says... Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
the, the Passover feast is, is about to begin. And John is pointing you, as he's carried along and writing with the power of the Holy Spirit, John is pointing you toward the greatest event on history's timeline. How many of you are history fans here? You like studying history? A lot of you do. Good. I believe wholeheartedly the greatest event in history. What we're going to be looking at and studying over the next five weeks, it's a prelude to that great marker on the history timeline. The cross of Christ. The death of Christ. We have opportunity to look at this in this very unique gospel that John's given to us. I say unique because John is the only writer, only, only one who gives us this look and see inside this particular time of Christ's life. Because you see, in just a matter of hours, Jesus is going to the cross. He's about to die. Yes, it's true, God's going to raise him three days later. And he'll spend an additional 40 days post-resurrection paying visits to his disciples and some 500 other disciples, according to the Scripture. He'll then ascend back into heaven to be with his Father. Acts 1, 9 through 11 tells us that. But for now, for our purposes here this morning and for the next five weeks, you're going to have an opportunity to hear what went on during those final hours before Jesus went to Calvary and died on what the hymn writer penned as that old... Rugged cross. The final hours of life are chronicled right here in John's gospel. And in particular, John provides these five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And these chapters manifest the heart of Christ before the cross the heart of Christ before the cross. What is on Christ's heart before he pays your debt? What is he teaching his disciples before he leaves earth? What does he want them to know before he leaves? What does he highlight for those who would follow after him? What things would he desire for them to do upon his absence? Now, I realize this morning that I'm speaking this word to many who are very familiar with Christ's death. Does familiarity with his death, though, cause you to look past his final hours? Since you know the account of Christ's death recorded in the Gospels, do you tend to bypass the preliminary details leading up to the cross? Have you considered that Jesus knew the exact timing of his final hours? Jesus knew that. What we see here in John's Gospel is Jesus preparing his disciples for that time to come when they would be on their own. I was thinking about Jesus' final hours and it caused me to ask the question, what about me? What about you? What about your final hours? 
here on earth. You ever think much of what it might be like for you to actually know if you had a few hours left? With limited hours left to live, how would you spend that time? I hope, I hope that you would not waste it by going on vacation or perhaps taking all the money out of your bank account and just spending it frivolously on self. I hope you would be inclined to invest well in those last few hours. Hours to pour into people, sharing with those you love the message of Christ, sharing with your spouse and children the things of Christ, things you hope they could continue to pass on, sharing with the body of Christ the love that you have for one another, sharing with the lost the judgment to come, persuading them to follow Jesus. And now let me ask you this. If you knew you had just a few hours yet to live. And you would invest in the church family, your, your immediate family, the lost. If you would be inclined to invest your time in those arenas, here's the question. Would that time be spent differently than the rest of your life? Would those last few hours look completely different from the way that you live the rest of your life? See, knowing that these final hours are ticking away, the things that matter most will start to come to the surface. And you know, as I was reading John 13, I'm reading about one man here who walked the earth, who actually knew the hour of his departure. There's one man here who stewarded his last few hours well. And get this about Jesus. Jesus spent his final hours doing the very same things that leading up to this point had characterized his life. He was doing the same thing. You know, you get into discussion talking about if you knew when you were going to die and the things that you would do if you knew you were going to die. How about, are we doing these things as we're living right now? Why would we wait? The Bible does say that we're but a mist, right? We're here for a while. We're gone. I read John 13 and I, I don't see Jesus turning into some spiritual person at the point leading up to his death. <laughs> his life at the end matches his life at the beginning. Some of you are saying, yeah, but he's Jesus. No, no, no. <laughs> no. That one won't float. 
He's the same Jesus, ministering to others, to his disciples in particular, preaching, teaching, healing. We've seen some of this already in the Gospels. The same Jesus who came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 1.14. It's the same Jesus who, and we found right here, right here in the upper room with his disciples just hours away from the cross. Now John 13 begins with some prefatory remarks and really in many ways provides context, not just for John 13. We need to understand, once we come to understand this context in John 13, right at the beginning of the chapter, this gives us context for John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. Very important context. So we see John is describing, first of all, before the feast of the Passover. So what he's describing here takes place before the Passover feast. At a time, John says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Okay, that's the context. In fact, if you flip over just a couple chapters, you see in John 16, which we'll get to 16 here in a few weeks, but for now, verse 28, Jesus says there, I came forth from the Father. And have come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. I came forth from the Father. And have come into the world. Emmanuel. God with us. And I leave the world. And go to the Father. You see he didn't. Just come down. Out of the heavenlies. To have a good time here on earth. That isn't why he came. It's not why he was sent. He tabernacled among men for time, not for fame, not for pleasure, not to win the latest popularity polls. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28 says. Jesus knew that his hour had come. If you flip backwards in John's gospel for just a moment. This is, I found this interesting. In John chapter 2, context there, the wedding at Cana. They run out of wine. Jesus says to his mother, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And he says, My hour has not yet come. This phrase, my hour has not yet come, this appears more than just what we're reading here in John 13. In fact, if you, if you skip over to John 7, in John chapter 7, verse 6, he's speaking to his brothers, who says in verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And then verse 8, he says, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And there are different accounts as we keep reading John's gospel. In fact, you can flip one chapter over in chapter 8, verse 20. Speaking to the Pharisees, these, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for what? 
Why? His hour had not yet come. Isn't it interesting when you read John's account and you see that sometimes they're, they're, they're going to pick up stones and throw at him, and he just, he's, he's like gone, he disappeared. They, they, they want to take him and, and toss him over the cliff on one occasion, right? But they, he just, gone. What's the explanation? Well, in part, the explanation, I believe in large part, ties in what we're talking about here. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. We, we fast forward a bit in John's gospel and look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 23. There were some Greeks, they were looking for Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus. Philip and came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus said, verse 23, chapter 12, The hour has come. The hour has come. You see that? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Skip down to 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So, even in chapter 12, we see the pendulum starting to swing this direction toward the hour now coming. The hour now being at hand. Okay? So, we turn in then to John chapter 13, and we see right at the beginning... And Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour had come. And Jesus came down here to earth, not simply to live and serve as a pattern for your living. He came down here to die, to give his life a ransom, to pardon your sin, to take upon himself the sin of his people that his, that his own would have everlasting life. His own people would have everlasting life. In fact, we'll get to in just a moment as we continue studying John 13, we're going to look at one of the big overriding, overarching purposes of John's gospel. And we see that at the end of John's gospel, why he wrote these things, why these things are recorded for us. So he knew his hour had come as we open the pages here of John 13. And again, I, I pause to pose the question. Do you recognize that there is an hour coming for you? Two. There is an hour coming. And maybe a follow-up question, is that hour on your radar? Or are you too busy living for right now, for today? See, because if, if you're a citizen of heaven, as Paul writes in Philippians 3, shouldn't, shouldn't you be thinking about the hour to come? If you're not of this world, if this world is not your home, shouldn't you be concerned about tending to the hour to come in your own life when that earthen tent, Paul describes, that earthen tent, our bodies, are no more. If you're living apart from Christ, perhaps the word of God would reveal to you today the urgency of this hour to come. 
There's coming a day when you too will die. I pray it doesn't take you by surprise. But I do pray, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, there would be a sense of urgency in light of the judgment to come that we who are in Christ would persuade others of this Christ that we know, knowing the terror, the judgment to come. So not only does John speak of Christ's hour having come, but he also describes the track record of Christ leading up to this point. Notice in John 13, it says, having loved his own who were in the world. Having loved his own who were in the world. That's the track record of Christ. You want to know what Christ was about? John tells us right here, beginning in chapter 13. His record is such, if you were to look back at all the things that he did during his time here, one thing that you could be certain of is that he was loving his own. That's what he did. It's what his life revolved around, loving his own. Extending love. In addition, right here in John 13, he describes what Christ is currently doing. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He loved them from the beginning and now is going to show them love, love that will eventually in just a few hours manifest itself in obedience to death on a cross. So I asked church, what is your track record of loving others? We see the track record of Christ. He loved his own. Do you with each passing day love those around you? Oh, this is a hard one sometimes, isn't it? Because people, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, I'd just like my job if I didn't have to deal with people. Loving people, it's a hard thing sometimes, isn't it? It really is. Because there are some people who are not very lovable. And it's so easy to think about those people that are not very lovable. It's harder to think about yourself as being one of those unlovable people. Did you ever think about that? You ever think about someone looking at you as being unlovable? We don't tend to think that way. We tend to think of the other people in our lives that we know who aren't very lovable. But perhaps we've not spent sufficient time thinking about, oh, I wonder how I'm doing at loving others. Jesus is going to speak to what this love that we're to have for others, what's that to look like? He's going to give us a picture of that. Not just here in John 13, but I believe through the remainder of our time here in John 13 through 17 of what this love looks like. Is that track record in your life, is it going to show any signs that you're a loving person? Will love be an enduring characteristic of your life? Okay, so Christ's love, we see is, is, is brilliantly, when we think about his love, it, it's brilliantly put on display at the cross. And so I'm thinking about this, and to, to love someone with a cross seems contradictory, perhaps. To love them with a cross. To those who are perishing, 
the message of the cross, according to what Paul writes in Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness. It doesn't make sense. The cross implies death. Why would anyone choose to show his love for another through his death? What does a cross have to do with showing love? You see, that same cross that's deemed foolishness to those who are perishing, it's deemed to be the power of God to those who are being saved. And Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So the cross is the power of God and the gospel of Christ is the power of God. The gospel of Christ includes, does it not? The cross of Christ. It's the centerpiece, is it not? The cross. This cross, this gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's the testimony of scripture. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Now, as I'm reading this verse, some of you, immediately when you heard Romans 5, 8, you checked out because you know the verse. I want to encourage you, don't check out. Listen to what it's saying. Listen. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, In this verse, Romans 5, 8, Paul records for us a few things about God's love. I believe are really significant, really important for us to sit up and take note of. First of all, he put his love on display for you to see. He sent Jesus down to earth. It's, It's visible. His love is visible to us. We're able to see it. Secondly, his love is a unique love. God demonstrates his own love. His own love. It's a unique love. And it's a love inclined toward us. Praise the Lord for that. Thirdly, his unique love is extended. Listen to what kind of folks. Sinners. It's extended to sinners. Remember we talked a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 2? Jesus says, I came, not for those of you who thought you were righteous. I came for sinners. That's why I came. Wonderful news. This is for sinners. God's love is for sinners. And lastly in this verse, we see his unique love characterized by Christ's death on the cross. Christ died. He demonstrated his own unique love By means of a cross. That's how he demonstrated that love, church. Through the cross. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. To the uttermost. The end speaks to his stay, which was coming to a close here on earth. The cross yet to come in a matter of hours. I want you to couple that love that we've just talked about, that love we've just described, couple that with additional context in verse 2. Okay? It says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Seems kind of odd that that's where he goes right after talking about love of Jesus, the cross. But I believe this is another contextual piece that he inserts here, again for our attention, cue in on what's happening. He mentions the devil. The devil. The devil was at work during the same period of time. And he's moving in the heart of one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot. Now, I want you to think about this. The devil moved in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus over to the governing authorities where he would be sentenced to death and die on a cross. The devil's working hard through one of Jesus' own disciples to get rid of Jesus. And yet Jesus has been talking about a cross for a long time. I love this verse. Because you know what? The devil thinks he's got it all figured out. He thinks he's got things under control. I'm just going to get Jesus out of the picture. And Jesus has been talking all along. Remember we talked about how on three different occasions in, in the Gospels, he brings up, I'm about to suffer many things. I'm about to die. I'm going to be handed over by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. And they're going to mock me. And they're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. And after that, three days later, I'm going to rise again. Jesus is already telling them what's going to happen. And here we see in verse 2, the devil. The devil is, in, is, in, is working and he's moving in the heart of Judas. And you know the devil, he takes such delight in, in, in canceling out anything having to do with God. Anything having to do with God. He, he just takes great delight in that. He delights in distraction. How many of you have ever been distracted by something? He delights in distraction. He delights in turning your attention away and off of God and his purposes for your life. That's what he wants to do. In fact, John tells us in chapter 10, the devil, he's come to steal, and kill, and destroy. Match those three things up with why Christ has come. He's come to bring life. Life to the full. You see, Peter describes this devil as an adversary, doesn't he? This, this adversary who walks about like a roaring lion. A roaring lion. There was a time when we were reading the Proverbs at home, and, and I believe he's outgrown it by now, but one of our younger guys... Whenever we read about a lion, because the Proverbs speak about a lion on a couple different occasions. I'd always hear in the midst of the family as we're reading, Roar! I always love that. I'll never forget that. But you know what? It's good to be reminded of his schemes. It's good to be reminded of these very things. It's good to be reminded of the cross and the purpose for which Jesus went to the cross, and understand that his purpose in going to the cross, the devil wasn't going to cancel any of that out, because Jesus already knew it was going to happen. The devil didn't know it, but he's helping out a little bit. I love the way we can see in the scripture the power and the authority and the sovereignty of God through Jesus Christ. This comes as no surprise to him. 
So as you turn to John 13, the devil is at work behind the scenes to hand Jesus over. He delights to have the heart of Judas, and yet the death of Jesus has already been worked out. In fact, it's deemed necessary that God's son die. He's the spotless lamb of God, remember? John says in John 1.29, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The devil is making his move through Judas, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew his hour had come. And his hour included dying on a cross for the sins of his people. The one who had been given the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. John 10.18. Jesus is the one in control, not the devil. Here we see in verse 2, darkness is pitted against the light of the world. And, and I was thinking about and just reminded about how, how true that is even yet today as we speak. Every day, every day we get up, darkness and light. We see it all around us. Darkness and light. Truth and falsehood. These, these things that are opposite to one another. Those who are in the world in, and, and those who are in Christ... And we see lives that are being spent, lives that are being wasted, lives that are going down paths that they're never intended to go down. And yet, that's what happens when lives are lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. When lives are lived out apart from what what John is speaking of here in in chapter 13. And he's going to be talking about servanthood. Oh, servanthood. Who's in line for servanthood today? Who wants to serve? See, the, the, the big plea for today, the big push for today that you hear and you see all, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. It's about you, isn't it? Because everything in this world is catered to making you feel good. You want a bank? You come to our bank. Because we'll do whatever we need to do to make you feel comfortable, be our customer. You, you want, and you can just fill in the, fill in the blank. A, B, C, D, whatever it is you're looking at, it's, it's about customizing to your need. Church, I, I read John 13, I don't see that way of living. I don't see it. I don't see it in this text. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. So, so John follows up the working of the devil at this time with the working of Christ. And the text says that he knew the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus is in charge of what seems to be a very dark time. Jesus is orchestrating his own death. <laughs> he, has, he has this under control. You see, because he's carrying out the will of whom? Here's something that's also important to note. His life is not being taken. It's being given up. There's a difference. In fact, John tells us that very thing, John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. And even in his dying, John records these very words in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. Jesus also at this time recognized where he had come from. It says he had come from God. He'd been sent down to earth 
for time to accomplish the purposes of his father and carry out his will. And that purpose is culminated at the cross where he would die and through his blood would draw all men to himself. Those that, is, that, those that believe, those that receive and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. One other thing, according to verse 3, Jesus knew. He knew he was going to God. The hour had come for him to return home to be with his father. And this again points toward the cross, but implies a resurrection, implies an ascension. Jesus came from God and is going back to God. The hour is upon him. Death is approaching. The cross is imminent. And love is displayed all the way to the end. So in this context then, John turns a corner and shows us a picture of what's happening in the upper room on this occasion before the Passover feast. There's a meal happening. But something else is about to happen that will capture the attention of his disciples and ought to capture the attention of those of us here today occupying a chair. It ought to, it ought to capture our attention as well because there's significant meaning behind the action Jesus is taking. It's not just an action to go, oh, wow, that's pretty neat. There's intended follow-up on our end in light of what he's sharing here in chapter 13, okay? The hope is that this would stir in them a heart, his disciples, to, to serve one another in the days ahead, long after Jesus would depart, because he's about to depart, remember? So John 13, 4 and 5. By the way, some of you are thinking, man, he's only gotten through three verses. Um, we're going to go pretty quickly through these next few. I really believed it was important to set this up, these next few weeks up, by looking a lot of context this week. And looking at the first three verses because it gives us context for the next several weeks. So, so hang with me, follow with me. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The love of Christ, church, is displayed in this upper room gathering with his disciples. And, and in conjunction with sharing a meal together, Jesus now gets up from the table and lays aside his garments. I found it interesting that in just a few short hours, he would be stripped of his garment. And he would show them the full extent of his love by laying down his own life for his own people. The, the picture on display in John 13 is an example, text says, it's an example of the love of Jesus, an example intended to make a difference in the lives of his followers. We've been talking a lot lately about what it means to follow Jesus. I, I, I believe in many ways this, there's no exception here. This is still pointing toward that very thing. How we live. What's this look like to be a follower of Jesus? And we see in the text right here, he washes the feet of his disciples. You know, I, I don't know. When you wash the feet of somebody, now hopefully here, hopefully, hopefully each of us wash our own feet. Hopefully. Now some of you little guys, 
And I say little guys because I know we got some little guys. You have to help them out every now and then. The thought of washing someone else's feet doesn't appeal to a whole lot. Washing someone's feet. There was a cultural thing to do, right, back in the day, that washing their feet was a custom, something that you were to do. And, you know, these people walk in, they had their sandals and whatever kind of sandals they had on, and, and whether they had sandals or not, you know, and are walking through these dirty, dusty roads. And, you know, now we've got these comfortable shoes. We've got these nice, cushy socks. Can you imagine what feet then smelled like? Looked like? I, and, and we may think this is kind of silly to talk about, but the idea of washing somebody's feet is where I'm going. Washing somebody's feet, it's, it's something that we wouldn't necessarily think about a whole lot today. And by the way, just a side note, Jesus is not instituting some ordinance here. What I mean by that is, he's not saying, by, the, by giving us this example here, not saying that now the church ought to make a regular practice of washing each other's feet. No, I believe that what's recorded for us here is an example to show us something very important about how we as a follower of Jesus are to be living our, our lives out and loving one another as servants. Okay, so see where I'm at here. I get going and I lose my notes. I lose my place. You ever do that? Imagine as the disciples see Jesus get up And he takes the towel, and he has the basin, he pours the water. Surely they would know what he's preparing to do just by the look of things. And, and, and yet, at the same time, they'd be puzzled as to why their great teacher and Lord would take up the servant's job to wash their feet. This, this isn't fitting for the Lord. Or is it? Well, we see here in the text, and I was reminded immediately in Philippians 2, 7, right? How, how Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a what? Servant, bond servant. John inserts a wonderful interchange here between Peter and Christ. I love this, and I love Peter. I, I love Peter. We read something about Peter a week or two ago, and we saw, you know... Peter gets a right answer, and then right on the heels of a right answer, he just doesn't get it. And I'm not saying that to point a finger at him, because there are a lot of times I don't get it. Here's another one of those examples. And he came to Simon Peter. So keep in mind, he's washing their feet, okay? He came to Simon Peter. So the narrative kind of stops right here. He gets to Peter. And you get the idea Peter's feeling a little convicted about this, what Jesus is doing. Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. But you will know after this. After what? 
After he washes his feet? After he dies on the cross? I tend to think after this, as after the cross, after the resurrection, after his ascension, after, here it is, after the Holy Spirit has come to lead him, guide him into all truth, to point him to the very words of Christ, to give him understanding about what Christ has spoken. Right now, you don't get it. But you'll know after this, Peter says, listen to what he says. You shall never wash my feet. I wonder how he said that. You ever, you ever think about that? You know, if he was like, or you'll never wash my, you know, he's, he's seeing what Jesus is doing. And he doesn't feel like it's right for his Lord to be washing his feet. You're not going to wash my feet. Well, Jesus answers and says, if, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, let's keep in mind here, Jesus is actually cleaning their feet. He's actually doing that, the physical aspect of cleaning their feet, washing their feet. And yet his physical act is accomplishing, I believe, intended to accomplish some spiritual principle here. The washing, the cleansing. If Christ does not wash you, you are not clean. If you have not been to Jesus for the cleansing blood, <laughs> you're not washed in the blood of the Lamb. blood of Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians, is what draws you near. It washes you clean. Unless he washes you, unless he cleanses you, you stand apart from him. Peter, though, is still thinking physical only. So look at how he counters. Verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus, I believe, loves Peter with his next words. He who is bathed only needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He says to Peter, you're clean, but not all of you. Here he tells Peter, and in case the reader is confused, John adds a narrative clue in verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Right? John sets this up contextually by pointing to the work of the devil in verse 2 in the heart of Judas. And Jesus is bringing this out right now here in verse 10. So in verses 12 through 17, Jesus resumes... His foot washing, coupled with some instruction about what this means for them in the days ahead. Look at 12 and 13. So when he had washed their feet, when he had finished, he continued. After Peter, he kept going and he finished. Taking his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, Well, for so I am. And I got to thinking, you know, have you ever had a time in your home where you, you've done something together as a family, okay? 
And after you've done this something together as a family, you call everybody together. And you have what I would just call a, a debriefing. We're going to debrief. We're going to talk about what we just did. And, and perhaps dads and moms, perhaps some of you have explored opportunities in those gatherings to think about what we just did, to think about what just happened, to think about how we can apply these very things. And you know, I see right here in the text, Jesus sits back down and he's calling everyone together for the purpose of instruction. You see, you want to make sure they get it. How many of you want to make sure they get it? I do. I want to make sure they get it. Now, I understand it's not all up to me. I can do what the Lord's called me to do. At the end of the day, there is going to be some responsibility for those youngers in our home to be able to get it. But I desire for them to get it. I, I long for them to get it. And you desire for the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God to their hearts to transform them. Help them to see clearly what the Lord is doing. Jesus has just washed their feet and now he sits back down. And he speaks to them of the very thing he's just done. And he opens with a question for them to consider. Do you understand? Do you know what I've done to you? He then acknowledges that they have addressed him correctly as teacher and Lord. And Jesus, as teacher and Lord, that, that implies authority, does it not? Teacher and Lord. Rabbi, teacher, Lord, master. Just as he's the teacher and Lord... And we, we see that and how that implies the authority. Jesus says, you're correct in identifying me this way. Now let me connect a few dots for you. You ever done that? I know at home, for some of our younger ones, in, in terms of their writing, sometimes they want to write something to someone. And so yeah, they want us to dot it. So, you know, we write all these dots. And then after we dot it, then they get the paper, and then it's, it's, it's pretty easy for them to connect those dots. I think sometimes as parents, that's... You know, we're, we're trying to help, you know, connect dots. Instead of just having these scattered dots, we've been trying, let's try and connect these things. And I think Jesus in some way right here with his disciples is trying to help them do this very thing. To connect the dots on what he just did for them in washing their feet. If I am the Lord and teacher, you might imagine Jesus saying, and I've washed your feet. You also ought, in other words, you're under obligation to wash one another's feet. If you're going to follow me in the days ahead, this is a picture I want you to keep in the forefront of your minds. You're correctly identifying me as Lord and teacher. You saw me wash your feet and you have until this point associated washing feet with lowliness. A job reserved for a servant. I'm pointing you to this as a way of life, men. This is the way my followers live. You see, Jesus gives an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so look what comes next in verse 16. On the heels of, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example you should do as I've done to you. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is, who is sent greater than he who sent him. A servant is not greater than his master. And they've identified him as teacher and Lord, and, and Jesus has said, you know, 
You're right in saying, I'm teacher, and that I'm Lord. But I also want you to understand, I don't want you to get confused into thinking that what I just did is something that's just for lowly servants. I want you to get a different picture of what I just did, guys. I want you to come to understand that what I just did in washing your feet ought to characterize your life. If you're going to be a follower of mine, guys, I'm just giving you this as an example. This is how I want you to live. So, the implication for the disciples. Following after Jesus in the days ahead, with the cross in full view, just a few hours away, the message here is that this life is intended for his disciples to take hold of as servants of Christ, their master. They're called to see themselves in relationship to Christ, to see themselves as servants, but for what purpose? Serving one another? As they serve one another, they're serving their master and following his example. And we, we're reminded again in Luke 20, 9, 23, it tells us, if you're going to follow, anyone who wants to follow me, he says, must deny himself. Jesus did that. He does that right here in John 13. And take up his cross daily. And, and Jesus, we know, literally did take up his cross. Okay? So the very things Jesus did, he calls his followers to do. And he's helping you see that as Lord and teacher, his mission is to save. And to save, he comes as a lowly infant in a manger. And to save, he's about to leave the world by way of the cross. But before the cross comes the foot washing, an example of what was yet to come, and an instruction for the way things must be for the follower of Jesus. Look how he concludes in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. He extends to his disciples a blessing. Not predicated simply on reciting knowledge, but in doing. Doing. Okay, Jesus is leaving shortly. He's leaving. And the instruction to serve one another, to love one another through serving one another... This is how others are going to know that you're one of my disciples, Jesus says elsewhere. The greatness that you've been talking about, you guys like to talk about being great, let me define great for you. It's washing the feet. Taking on the role of a servant. Understanding that I, your Lord and teacher, have come not to be served, but to serve. That's the way. That's the life he's calling you to. Church, does the blessing of God motivate you? The the kind of living that's modeled and taught by Christ here in John 13. It's the life intended for every Christ follower. In a few chapters, we'll read about bearing fruit. Abiding in him. For now, realize that the life that you have is short. It's short, relatively speaking, on that continuum. You do not know the hour of your departure, but you do know it's certain. Unless the Lord should return, which if he does, praise the Lord. That'd be wonderful. 
the life you live in light of Christ, in light of his love toward you. May you now live it to God, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me with the cross, gave himself for me. Now turn your attention to the end, John 13, for just a moment. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's, it's, it's not new in that it's never been heard of before, right? Because the law said, in fact, that was the second greatest commandment, wasn't it? Love one another. Love the Lord your God, love one another. A new commandment I give to you, new in the sense that this love, this love was going to be now intended for his followers to live out apart from him being there with them. (laughs) He's not going to be there. So what's this love going to look like? You see, it's easy, it's easy to love somebody when you're hanging around Jesus, literally, physically. I mean, Jesus, come on. Wouldn't that have been, let's think about that for just a moment. You get, you get three, three years, two and a half years to hang around with Jesus. And you get to see what he does and how he loves people. But now he's going to be gone. Now you're going to have this commandment to love, that you love one another. And he says, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. The end of John's gospel says this. Chapter 20. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written. These are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And. That's that's an important conjunction right there. And. That believing you may have life in his name. Church, this is not just simply about believing because we know elsewhere James tells us that the demons believe. That believing you may have life in his name. These things are written that you may believe. So I take these things as all of what he shared up to this point. There are a lot of things that could have been included, but these things are written that you might believe. John 13 falls under that category of things that are written. Christ washes feet of his disciples as a pattern, as an example for what his disciples, his followers are to be about doing. How we are to spend our days here serving one another. And in doing that very thing, according to what I read at the end of John's gospel, that in believing We may have life in his name. This is something he's called us to. This is something he's called us to be about. And this is going to be a product of what John has referred to as life in his name. This is good. This is a wonderful thing. This ought not to be viewed as something lowly, despised, oh, awful, ugly, ugh, servanthood. Jesus is holding up and saying, this is how you're to live. 
And in living this way, you are showing yourselves to be my disciples. Church, the time is short. You know not when you're going to depart. Let's follow what Jesus has just asked us to do. Not ask, let me rephrase that. Let's follow what Jesus has just shown us and walk in that way. Let's be diligent to do that together as a body. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, I, I just ask that your word, as it, as it goes forth and continues to go forth, Father, not just here on a Sunday morning, but Lord, each day in the lives of, of, of your church, your people here, Lord, that as they open your word, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to them, give them understanding, allow them to see, allow them to hear your truths. Father, I pray that, that the word spoken today, Lord, I pray. Oh, Father, I pray that they would uh, land on hearts. Lord, I, I realize everybody coming in here today is coming in here with, with different trials, different challenges, difficulties going on in their life. But I also know, Lord, that your word does not return to you void, does not return to you empty, but accomplishes the very purpose for which you sent it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just apply that word of yours into the hearts of men here today. Father, I pray that we would take these words, that we would live these words, that we would not just say, oh, what a wonderful uh, uh, chapter this is. Close it and be done with it. Lord, I pray instead we would take these words of life and live these out that we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, living out these truths that you've given to us, this instruction that you've given. I pray that as a child of the King, we would be diligent to follow the King's instructions. And let's march as a church according to the instructions of the King. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.